Hello, everyone. I'm Sadie. And I'm Adriana. And welcome back to a very special, very spooky episode of the Pine Reads podcast. Today, we have two very special guests who are winners of our spooky story contest. Okay, so our first special guest on today's very special episode is Aiden. So Aiden, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for our listeners? Hi, uh, I'm Aiden. It's great to be here. Uh, I am a senior at the University of Arizona studying classics, creative writing, and anthropology. Uh, and I wrote a story for the Halloween competition called The Game of Tongues. Well, that sounds very, very interesting. I would love to hear you read your story. Yeah, you got it. The Game of Tongues. The old man looked between his two competitors at the round table. The gray-eyed woman took off her gold-rimmed glasses and slid them into the betting pile. She discarded her chosen playing card. Across from her, the devil tapped his fingers on the table. Interesting, the devil mused. Is it your eyesight that you're betting or are you trying to be clever? If the woman went blind after betting, she didn't show it. She was stony-faced as the devil snapped his fingers to call over a black-suited demon. The devil held out his hand to the demon. Like a grim children's toy, the demon popped his ears off his head and plucked his eyes from their sockets and placed them in the devil's gloved hand. The devil dropped the parts into the betting pile. So the devil met the woman's bet and set aside a card of his own. The old man shivered. The old man held a card that said love. He thought he must wager romance and match the other's gambles in severity. Tentatively, the old man slid a gold band off of his finger and gingerly placed it in the pile. He went to discard, but a click of the devil's tongue stopped him. That's against the rules, the devil sang. The old man sputtered. It is not. You sacrificed that demon's eyes. You may be married to her, but she doesn't belong to you. The demons, however, do belong to me. The card in the old man's hand erupted into flames. Mammon, he's all yours. A demon with jewels for teeth hauled the old man away, screaming and crying, his ring left behind. The devil went to pocket the old man's ring. Not so fast, Lucifer, the woman said, sickly sweet. For which card did you rob the demon of his senses? The devil only grinned. The rules of the game allowed for questions, but not answers. I think you played the oracle card, the woman said, and the devil's smile waned. The woman revealed her hand to show the word for oracle in the demon's tongue on the face of one card. Impossible, since I have that card. Lying was encouraged, but getting caught meant losing the game. The devil's deck burst into flames. He frowned and flipped the old man's ring back into the betting pile, which the woman promptly began scooping into her purse. You play well, the devil conceded. He surveyed the pile. What card did you play? The woman opened an empty vial from the pile and with a gust of wind, she was overcome with newfound youth, a sacrifice from the now old man. Her eyes remained gray, but she became a creature of light in that den of iniquity. She flipped over the top card in her deck. It said pride. 
Like a cat, the devil grew too curious about what egotism the woman wagered, and his ego would not stand a loss. He tapped his foot excitedly. Girl, I'll tell you what, one more game for anything you want. The woman tilted her head. What did you have in mind? The oldest game in the universe, the devil said. The game of tongues. What are the rules? An evil grin erupted across the devil's handsome face. The oldest game in the universe was the beginning of the end for Lucifer. Losing it sent him spiraling from the heavens. It was a measurement of pride and deception, and no being knew the concepts like the fallen angel. Usually, the game ends with the loser's tongue severed for the lies they told. Behind him, a demon conjured an obsidian knife and twirled it between his rotting fingers. But a different bargain could be arranged. The woman stood to tower over the devil himself. She did not look afraid. How about a gambit of souls? For a moment, the hordes of hell were silent. The flies around Beelzebub's head stopped buzzing. The frogs in Belphegor's throat were muffled. The succubi in Asmodeus's entourage gasped and quieted. You win, you get the rest of the last game's winnings and my soul, the woman said. I win, I take yours. From her purse, the woman pulled an empty jar and set it before the devil, a cage awaiting a prisoner. After a moment of deliberation, the devil snapped his fingers. The den went dark and the two competitors were illuminated with infernal light. As the challenger, the devil made the first move. I am the morning star, and even now, cast from heaven, I pull the dawn. What have you accomplished? Unmoved, the woman said, I watched you create it. It was impossible, the devil thought. She was just an old woman. He continued, I am the most beautiful of all creations. When Icarus flew toward the fiery sun, it was me he lusted for. I embraced him when he fell, the woman said, just as I embraced you. A shocked murmur erupted from the hordes of hell. The woman and the devil stalked around each other. I have built a kingdom greater and more vast than the endless scores of heaven. I am the king of pandemonium. I gave you the souls you built it with. For I am the temptress that leaves war even in the wake of gods and angels as they bicker over who is greatest. The devil swallowed thickly. I was the first to play the game of tongues. I'm sorry, dear boy, but you're lying, said the gray-eyed woman. It was I who designed it. So Hubris retired with the devil in a jar as the hordes of hell warred over the throne. When they were ripe for the picking, she would pluck another prideful demon from the line of Lucifer. And in the darkest depths of the underworld, she will add the rest of her fallen progeny to her collection. For like poor Icarus, even devils can still fall. The end. <laughs> that was so good. That was amazing. And can I just say, I loved the way that you read this story. Well, thank just you. Just like your tone. And just how you said the words was phenomenal. I, thank you. I appreciate that. Honestly, yes. I felt like the emotion that you wrote the story with, like from your reading, it was really, really a treat to hear you re read it. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's great praise. 
So now we are going to chat a little bit about the game of tongues and we have some questions for you. Let's do it. So our first question is, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the inspiration for the game of tongues? Right. So my brain is in a perpetual word association game, which is great for writing and terrible for explaining what inspires me. Uh, I usually write long form work, so I couldn't pick something up for my drafts and submit it to you guys for the competition. So I got thinking about Halloween and that turned into thinking about demons and devils. And by the time I got to thinking about pride, I was already thinking about the imagery of gods and misogyny. I, I can talk a, about a few things that, a few core inspirational concepts for the story. One of them being the classic game with the devil. Uh, it's not a new concept to play a game with the devil and wager your soul. Uh, you see it in the devil went down to Georgia and the House of the Rising Sun, I'm pretty sure someone told me that there is a supernatural episode with the same concept. Um, there is a, a part of the Sandman comics, and I believe Preludes and Nocturnes, in which Morpheus is challenged by a demon to a transformation chase. Uh, it's basically a game where you have to become you have to turn yourself into something that can beat what your challenger has turned themselves into. Uh, a good example of this is the god Apollo chasing Daphne and Daphne trying to get away from him by turning into a tree. Um, and so there are lots of different uh, ways that people want to, for some reason, gambit to their soul with the devil. And it often has to do with games. Uh, we also see this, see this with gods and many different mythologies. Many different legends have this idea of mortals playing with playing games with gods. Uh, there, is, there is some kind of power in outsmarting someone who wrongfully believes that they are better than you. And that power is twofold when you are defeating a being of legend. Um, and that's why these stories are so popular, I think. And so this concept of outsmarting someone who has been terrible to you is something that a lot of women are familiar with. Uh, women are statistically more likely to experience imposter syndrome in their profession despite being of a skill level uh, with their male counterparts or even outmatching their male counterparts in that same profession. Uh, and that isn't to say that men don't experience imposter syndrome, but women do at much higher rates because they are often so severely underestimated. And in that light, I started thinking about the goddess Hubris. So the goddess Hubris is a Greek goddess. It is tentative to consider her a goddess necessarily. She's more of a personification of pride. Uh, and in Aesop's fables, uh, it is described that she married Polemus, who is the personification of war. Uh, and their marriage is described as being so full of adoration that whenever Hubris stepped, that wherever Hubris stepped, war would follow. And that is such a raw metaphor for the descent of man into violence as a result of their own pride. <laughs> and so I just decided to run with all of these concepts. Uh, and so I kind of mixed some uh, Christian theology and uh, Hellenic religion together into this story. Well, it turned out really well. I really liked the mention of mythology in the story it worked really really well thank you yes I agree I think um like explaining kind of the concepts that you drew inspiration from for the story it sounds like it could be like 
a lot and a little overwhelming, but I think you just like so effortlessly combined everything into this story. Thank you. It's a uh, it's it was hard to combine all of these different concepts into set into so few words. This is I know it's a thousand words, but it's still so much shorter than my usual work. I tend to write long form stuff like I have a couple of novels in the works. And so this is so much shorter than what I'm usually used to. Um, but I'm, I'm glad it worked. <laughs> Aiden, would you like to tell our listeners what your writing process is like? My writing process is a little chaotic and difficult to follow. Um, I am what you might call a pantser. I do not have an outline for almost anything. And as much as I do try, I do try. Every time I sit down to write something, I make an outline and I hope for the best. And not a single time have I stuck to that outline, not once. <laughs> I, I have an outline for this story, completely different than what I ended up writing. It is, it is so wildly out of left field. And so usually I come up with a concept. I said earlier that I, I am just constantly uh, associating things I see and hear with other concepts that I've learned uh, and wanting to mix them together to form different stories. Uh, and so I'll usually write one of those down. And then when I want to turn it into a story, I have a notebook in which I kind of brainstorm. It, it's not in any cohesive format. It's just, it's usually just a lot of uh, brain maps and such to help me come up with concepts. Uh, I'll sometimes for longer form works, make a character Bible so that I can keep track of the characters at least, uh, which, I tend to stick to a little more than an actual outline. But then I don't really write like one piece at a time. I will write whatever I want to write at the moment and Frankenstein stitch it together at the end and hope for the best. And that's usually how it goes. I am the exact same way when it comes to writing. I, I, just, had a, I just had a conversation with a friend the other day just about how much we both dislike outlining like, I'll try it too, but I just, I get too bored. Yeah, it's, it's rough. I, I wish I could outline. I really, really do. I would get so much more done if I could outline, but I get so bored with the outline. <laughs> I suddenly come up with different, better ideas and I don't want to go back and I don't want to waste time on the outline when I could be writing things, but then that doesn't en end up working out because I'm wasting time trying to figure out how to piece my story together instead of just writing it as it should have been written but you know you write how you can write right <laughs> you get it done eventually exactly um I outline in my brain that's where <laughs> my outline lives so I don't know I just I feel like outlining too kind of takes away a little bit of the magic of writing like I, I like letting my story and my characters decide mm -hmm. where it's going to go. Like, I am just a vessel. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely one of those people that craves, uh, I, I, I crave routine. I would like routine. Um, I feel like it would make my life easier, but every time I'm in a routine, I feel trapped. <laughs> and outlines are the same way. I know that some people need them, and I know that it can be very, very helpful uh, I, I used to teach journalism and I would, even then I would be like, Hey, 
always outline your story. It's really helpful. Even though my outlines for all of the stories that I wrote as a journalist were mostly just piecing pieces together. <laughs> like I Frankenstein stitched my journalism stories together too, but <laughs> you know. Yeah, I feel like it's hard for me to process doing an outline when I know, like, I know I'm going to change my mind 5,000 times between the beginning and end of a story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just a little bit pointless for me. <laughs> yeah, I have way too many drafts of the same story of how many times it has changed. Right. But yeah. hey, that's material to revisit in the future possibly yeah that's one part the the game of tongues specifically it started out as a reiteration of something that i had tried writing for a writing exercise in a previous class from a couple of years ago we used to have these like 15 minute writing exercises and i was never good at those <laughs> but i had this i had this thing it was completely unfinished and so wildly different from the game of tongues the only thing that really stayed the same was that there was an old man selling his soul to the devil in a game and it was a lot different um but i i i started with that concept and then just started running with it with different things i was thinking about at the time uh, so yeah well on the topic of kind of your writing process with the game of tongues um what did you enjoy most about writing the story uh, probably researching. <laughs> um, I both love and hate falling into a rabbit hole of research. I think I probably spent more time researching a bunch of things that ended up not making the final cut in the story than I spent actually writing it. Um, which is fine because I love learning and I get to use those things later in future stories. Uh, and you can't, you can't fit everything into a thousand words. So you kind of have to give some stuff up, but I definitely like researching things. Uh, I, I like learning. And so, uh, being able to base my stories off of mythology and science, it's, it's very fun for me. I definitely agree with you about the research rabbit hole that mm -hmm. sometimes it can be a hindrance to actually completing the project. Oh yeah. But like you said it's fun to get to learn all this new stuff like I was working on a piece back in April or May and it was inspired by the Handmaid's Tale meets dystopian YA fiction meets the Duggar yeah. family interesting so I fell down a rabbit hole of their like particular denomination and yeah. just kind of the organization they belong to and for like three days straight I'm surprised I did not destroy my eyes from just how many <laughs> hours I spent yeah. staring at my computer screen <laughs> I must have spent like four or five hours researching like ancient games for this story I knew I wanted there to be some you know old eclectic game that the devil and hubris needed to play i didn't know what that game was gonna be um and so i kept researching all of these different games none of which panned out uh and but now i've got all of these different games in my head <laughs> that i can use for other things it's i learned perfect. about like old persian chess games and stuff and that's just flitting about in my brain now that's very interesting. I find it, I find it very interesting that your favorite part was the research because 
I hate doing research for my projects unless it's something like I'm already passionate about. Yeah. That's why that's why I write about things that I'm passionate about. Right. <laughs> I'm I'm a classics major. I write about mythology and religion all of the time. This is not the first time and will not be the last time that it happens. <laughs> is the game of tongues a genre you write often in? If not, could you tell us a little about what you normally write slash like to write about? Yeah. Um so I'm not sure what genre the Game of Tongues is in, actually, now that I consider it. I'm not sure what genre I would place it in. Probably some form of fantasy. Um, But sci-fi and fantasy are definitely my main genres. Uh, But I always tend to include gothic, horror, and mythological elements into the things that I write. So this is definitely right up my alley. Um, It's, again, shorter than my usual stuff, but it's concerning genre, it's definitely right up my alley. Um, I trying to think if I have any other stories that are quite like this one, and I think the answer is no. <laughs> like this one is different. I really like that this one is different. That this is the one you submitted for our contest, and yeah, it's a little bit out of your comfort zone, but like still very within the confines of like what you like. It's definitely different from my usual work, but it had to be because my usual work is so much longer and there's uh, so much more stuff going on. Uh, Most short stories that I write, I'm putting quotations around short stories. uh, They are upwards of 50 pages. They are not short stories. They are novelettes. (laughs) Um, And so I definitely had to condense a bunch of uh, more terrifying gritty descriptors that I would usually use. Um, and I definitely, I had to start this particular story in media res, uh, to get it moving. And so there was, there was a lot of experimenting with me on this one. Well, it was a successful experiment. Thank you. Yeah. I think that's really interesting too, because like starting a story like that could be a little bit difficult, but I like that that's what it took to like get the ball going and like really get into it. Yeah, I had I had a, an original draft of the story where I I started at the beginning. There was this old man who really needed to make money or something, and that did not pan out, and it got way too long, and it wasn't very interesting to begin with. And so I decided to go back to my roots in epic poetry um, and just start in the middle of things. And so we started the story starts in the middle of a game that is about to end. Uh, and it ended up working out (laughs) right it did it worked out really well so is writing something you plan on pursuing as a career or is it just a hobby for now wow I hope so (laughs) I would I would love to write novels for a living um I I do aspire to become a novelist I have plenty of plenty of stories in the works that I hope to complete uh soon after I graduate so that I can start looking at publishing options um, I have uh, like eldritch horror sci-fi anthologies. I have uh, a, a series uh, or it might be a series, it might be a novel uh, in which I subvert basically everything that happens in the Aeneid uh, by Virgil and recreate it in a fantasy setting. Uh, there's a story that takes place in a town that is absolutely not Tucson. <laughs> It may look like Tucson, but it's not. Don't get it twisted. 
Um, there's there's a couple of those. Uh, there's one story where I really, I would love to write it, but I've never visited New Orleans and it takes place in New Orleans. So I have to go there first. Uh, it's about uh, people who work at graveyards. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I would love I would love to be uh, a regular author. <laughs> well, I think the two most important parts of being an author are ideas and skill. And it really seems like you got both of them. <laughs> High praise. Thank you. <laughs> for sure. I definitely will be keeping my eye out for every single one of those books in the future. <laughs> because uh, this is a reoccurring theme on this podcast. Um, I don't read a lot of fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> However, the descriptions that you have just given of like these stories and novels that you have in progress, like I would totally read yeah. these fantasy novels. I appreciate that. If you enjoy uh, kind of gritty, dark fantasy and weird humor, that's definitely... <laughs> That's definitely, that. I definitely might be up your alley in terms of what you might like to read. Um, but yeah, thank you. Trust me, I'm working on her and getting her to read more fantasy. <laughs> it's, it's a journey, but I'm in for the long haul. <laughs> Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman is a great place to start. Well, you know, I think we might have found my niche here. Yeah, what is it? You. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you like the Game of Tongues, you should definitely read Neil Gaiman. He's definitely like one of the authors who I aspire uh, to exemplify the most. Um, yeah, Neil Gaiman, V.E. Schwab, those kinds of people, great authors. If you like the sorts of things I write, might be up your alley. Madeline Miller too. <laughs> She's also, a, I'm also a big fan of her. Very nice. I do have The Invisible Life of Abby LaRue. Yeah, that's a good one. It's currently yeah, on uh, my bookshelf. Do you like sci-fi? Um, so, so. I don't read a lot of it. Yeah. I, I tend to read, I like contemporary, realistic. Ah, Kind of okay. more up my alley. Or historical fiction. Sucker for a good World War II story. <laughs> Sadie, you're funny. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to be like shame Sadie you don't read sci-fi but then I'm like I'm not gonna shame you for like not <laughs> you you like what you like I don't right? read a lot I don't read a lot of like 19 or 20th century stories to be honest I don't know why um I for some reason I really really enjoy reading about wars that take place in many 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 years past but not so much in more recent history. A uh, bit too close to home, I guess. <laughs> well, is there any chance we could see a sequel or continuation of the Game of Tongues in the future? Eh, probably not. <laughs> it's, 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 very, it's a very short story. Uh, maybe you'll see it in a short story anthology someday if it is palatable to include a 1,000-word story among a bunch of novelettes. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you'll see it in an anthology but probably won't be a sequel makes sense yeah sorry <laughs> although we would love one <laughs> <laughs> although I I am very satisfied with the ending 
of the Game of Tongues. Although selfishly, I just want more because I love it so much. <laughs> right. But like, I totally see how it's like the story arc is complete. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, I was happy with how it ended. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, very self-contained, satisfied. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted. I noticed that a lot of uh, uh, stories about you know games with the devil uh, take place in like series and in, in, in anthologies. Um, it's usually like one arc in one character's major story and I really wanted something that could stand up on its own that wouldn't need anything else uh, and so that's what I did here well worked out very well I know I keep saying that but it, <laughs> it's the truth <laughs> this is definitely one of my favorite short stories that I think I've read ever oh thank you that just makes that me good very proud <laughs> Which is ironic because the story is about pride. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we love irony here at Pine Reads. Oh, yeah. The irony of me submitting a story about a game that reveals your own pride to a competition (laughs) does not escape my notice. (laughs) Do I know what that means? No, I'm not going to analyze it. Just let it lie. Just let it let it lie there. <laughs> well, I think that was the last of our questions. Um, here is our second very special guest on our very special episode. His name is Ezekiel. Hi. <laughs> Good, great to be on. I appreciate it. Thank you guys for doing this. Yeah, thanks for joining us. You can go ahead and um, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself if you'd like. Okay. Yeah, uh, my name's Ezekiel Holm. Um, I was born and have lived in Tucson, Arizona for about half my life. Um, and so th- I consider this place very much home. And it is a very large place of inspiration that I draw from when writing and um, doing various other activities. But um, yeah, I graduated in 2020 from the University of Arizona and have been pursuing different volunteer and um, writing opportunities ever since then. That sounds very nice. Honestly, I have no idea what I'm going to do after graduation. <laughs> so it sounds like you're you're riding a very confident wave right now. And you know what? I, I think that's the key is that, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you can do, but ultimately it doesn't necessarily mean that it's right for you. So it's just, you know, pacing yourself and like what, what, what you guys are doing. I think it's awesome. You know, it's really free form. And it has that ability to reach out and get the kind of different perspectives from a lot of different people. And so I think I think what you guys are doing is, you know, talk about confidence. There you guys got it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So you um, can go ahead and give our listeners a reading of your winning poem from our spooky poetry contest. All right. So we have Xanadu's Fear. In the age of the star-cluttered nights, there was a boy who knew no fright. He was strongly built and bold, even just at 12 years old. The small village he called his home was protected by a magic dome that had always kept at bay evils and sinister ways. Though well-guarded these people were, some could not resist the beyond's allure. And so every now and then, the sunrise would reveal an unpleasant surprise. One of these times was when a young girl, eager to experience an unknown thrill, opened the village's mystic door and was gone forevermore. The boy protested his villages in action 
as he sought to rescue his friend from wicked factions who bewitched her into breaking their borders and disobeying the village's sacred orders. The villagers told the boy, however, that he too would be lost forever, because if he were to go and find his friend, it would surely be his untimely end. Despite their warnings, the boy could not be dissuaded from embarking on such a noble crusade, and so at dawn's waking cry, he left, never saying goodbye. The sun burned violently as the boy traveled silently across the densely forested terrain, advancing in his tireless campaign. But soon the sun did weaken, no longer being a directional beacon, forcing the boy to make his camp protected only by a feeble lamp. The boy awoke after soundless sleep and prepared to continue into the deep when he noticed in the reflection of a creek he had aged 10 years and had a new physique. Awed by his realization, he ran that day through the trees, bound by nothing, feeling truly free. It was only when he could see no more that he finally rested with a gaudy snore. Several hours past dawn he arose at the loud cawing of circling crows, but when he saw himself this day, he had aged twenty more years and grayed. Unconvinced by this sight, he tried to lift the log with all his might, but to his shock, his muscular power had begun to prematurely sour. Though taken aback by this change, he still set across the foreign range, but grew tired quicker than before, and by dusk swiftly slept from being sore. The sun ascended hours later. He awoke, but his pain was greater. Forty years gained and shivering from the cold, the once young boy was now frail and old. He tried to stand, but could not, for all his strength was spent and fraught. But as he began to mourn and chide, the girl appeared and kneeled by his side. He looked at her with victorious eyes, but she looked back with a ravenous guise and put her hands over his ancient heart before his body completely crumbled apart. This is why the village's dome was erected to ensure time itself was protected. So no matter how brave you may be, render what you may become when escaping reality. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, you know what? I think that was actually the first time like I fully read it and I just, I kind of got into the zone of it. <laughs> so that was really cool. <laughs> it was so good. I, when I read it for the first time, I was not expecting that, that twist of the forest to like propel the boy through time and make him age in like a blink of an eye. So that just, that twist, I wasn't expecting it, but I loved it. Thank you. You know, in all honesty, I was not expecting it either. <laughs> I, I, you know, I just kind of started writing it and I, I came to this point in which I realized that because uh, I, 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 I wouldn't say horror is necessarily my uh, preferred or honestly, uh, it's probably the genre I least um, have written in. But it, yeah, I understand that there are certain points in which you have to kind of enact a switch in um, either the tone or the setting or one of those aspects and I thought that instead of trying to make it so that there was an outside force that was kind of um in instigating that I thought that maybe the setting itself would be the better uh kind of instigator of that change well it worked really well because that story or poem it told a really nice story it was really effective it evoked a great sense of imagery I could really like see everything that was happening well, thank you. And, you know, I think that that is also one of the key characteristics of horror um, writing in general is that it has to be visually propelled. 
and mm -hmm. it's um and you, I, I, not necessarily visually even but it has to be sensory propelled you have to kind of get an idea of where you stand and what the sounds are and how the environment you're you're kind of immersed in is hostile or not hostile or exactly what what is kind of uh, giving off that edge of fear and the reaction to it. Right. I think you did a really great job of um, kind of that immersion, especially with poetry. You know, a, poetry is not always as long as fiction. So you kind of have to be a bit more careful about your word choices. And like every word has to, like every word matters to the story that you're trying to tell through your poem. And I think you told a really great story here. Thank you. And yeah, you know, um, I, I, at times I was because I did end up cutting, I would say, um, about two stanzas worth of poem um, just to get the kind of concise um, 500 word count that I was going for. And uh, that was challenging initially. But I would say that actually really helped kind of give a good and strong backbone to what the poem needed to be in terms of it. it because I, I think that's another thing that can be hard with the horror genre is that you it can be elongated and the sense of horror and immediacy can be quickly lost just by the amount of detail you give or you know the overloaded detail really so I, I appreciated the five even though it was a challenge <laughs> the 500 word count that that was uh, an essential part I would say to this poem good I'm really glad that actually worked in your favor I know sometimes writing limits are so hard especially mm -hmm. when you can just write forever <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know and and I think that's kind of the funny thing about this poem style too is that you know as long as you can keep coming up with rhymes really you can you can go on and um I I initially <laughs> the when I first submitted the poem and I ended it I I really did want to write more and I felt like oh I I you know my story was kind of cut short but as I reflect on it now and as I kind of hear what you guys are saying, it does sound like it actually, it ends at that point where it's, it's, it fits very well for that poor kind of um, absence of really a finality in a way. Yeah. Um, I also really want to talk about the rhyming scheme. The rhymes were very, very clever. I really enjoyed the rhymings. I enjoyed them as well. You know, I've, read some poetry before where the the rhyme scheme kind of like ruins the tone <laughs> yeah the but <laughs> your rhyme scheme like it just was it was so captivating well thank you um you know rhyme is actually something I can struggle with at times um and so that I think in acting a pretty simplistic rhyme scheme was uh, a very good start starting point for me because it allowed just, you know, it, it didn't put a lot of pressure on the rhyme pattern or, and I didn't, I didn't follow a syllabary count or anything like that, but um, it, it gave that ability to have that free form in terms of um, just simply coming up with adjectives really that would fit more than anything else. And at times the rhyme did actually structure the progression of the story in which um, like, old and uh cold you know it, I was like all right they play off of each other and I wasn't initially planning on having that much of an age jump um at the end but I was like all right the just given the rhyme and how it's kind of presenting itself I think it would be fitting right yeah and it is fitting it really works very very well 
Well, thank you. Thank you. Now we have some questions for you about your poem. Ooh. Okay. So, Sounds like a plan. <laughs> uh, first off, um, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about the inspiration for Xanadu's Fear? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a lot of inspiration um, on various levels. Um, I think I should address um, kind of uh, why I titled it Xanadu's Fear, because um, Kubla Khan, Samuel Taylor Coolidge's um, famous poem, was certainly uh, a main point of inspiration for this. Um, I, and I don't know if uh, this is typical for a lot of poets. I think it is. But naming or titling your poem after it's actually written is something that I, I would say I do pretty much 100% of the time. So um, I, I looked back at the poem and even though the idea of the dome had always been present and that, that is um, probably the most um, <laughs> uh, unique or important aspect of um, Coolidge's poem, to me, it didn't actually really come to the main forefront until the very ending in which you kind of realize that, oh, this dome isn't meant to be this kind of sanctuary of purity. It's, it is, as you know, has been hinted at, this rather kind of um, important piece of protection. Um, and so that, that idea of, you know, Xanadu being this perfect place of nature um, and human artifice that's what compelled me to name it Xanadu's fear because it, it, it's kind of breaking that with these aggressive forces of nature and these corrupted individuals kind of coming in and disrupting the pleasure dome in a sense. Um, in that same way, I would say that um, another inspiration was the movie The Village by um, M. Night Shyamalan. And uh, that, that film, I, um, <laughs> I personally have some issues with, actually. It's not one of my favorite films of his, but I think it's actually pretty compelling in terms of its gothic approach and its um, presentation of this isolation and the kind of horror experienced in that. So that, that was certainly an idea that I think I started off with, and then it devolved into this further telling of this idea of... Um, basically you know it's not so much about the community harboring and really holding back the individual it's more that the community is very much focused on everybody's best and everybody's best health and survival really um and then i would say the final inspiration um it's kind of broad but a lot of native american histories and folklore tales they revolve around this um conflict between an individual's interests and desires and the community's interests and desires. And oftentimes the community's um, interests and desires and necessities, they take a forefront. And that, that idea, um, it's, very, it's very interesting to kind of introduce in a Western setting. I'm not saying that this poem is necessarily um, Western in that sense, but, I would, um, but the fact that it's based on Coolidge's poetry is it is an acknowledgement of that kind of Western influence. So it's kind of taking that and seeing how that Native American history and those values of community-centric um, decision-making and uh, agency really kind of can conflict forces, but should be understood for its, its, you know, its important purposes. Yeah, as, as I was reading it, um, it, the story kind of felt familiar 
Mm. And it wasn't until you mentioned the village that I was like, <laughs> yes, that's I can totally <laughs> see the inspiration from it. And I liked yours. I just liked it better than the village. I agree. <laughs> the village is not the best movie, but I feel like you took the concept and made it a lot more interesting. Well, I feel honored. <laughs> Dare I not sound arrogant, but I feel honored. <laughs> and, you know, and I think that's the thing. It's like, um, it's two very different visions. It's very similar starting points, but the endpoints and the kind of thematic conclusions, those are the most prominent differences. And that's, and they honestly, there would, you know, kind of distinct my story, I would like to imagine from the village. Could you tell us a little bit about your writing process? Yeah. Um, so I, I, in general, I'll admit, um, I, I appreciate um, a, a time limit of writing. So uh, I, I did not find out about this, the contest actually until I would say like midday, the day it was so I was like wow I really gotta you know I gotta get going but thankfully I had the time available and um I I was I was kind of comfortable writing in that <laughs> that tense time time constraint so that I would say that that's a pr probably an important <laughs> thing to mention um but in general I would say that I like to imagine a visual setting um first and foremost I like to be able to really kind of understand what exactly the environment is, the characters I'm going to introduce, and the themes I'm going to introduce are going to interact with and how they're going to be affected. Um, and at that point, it just becomes a matter of filling in those kind of character spaces. And so in this story, in this poem, um, the young boy, um, I didn't actually make him a boy until probably midway through the poem really and it was it was simply actually just because it was hard to find um concise pronouns that didn't allude to you know male or female kind of identities and everything like that that rhymed so that was that was just a challenge just uh, kind of conforming to the rhyme structure but um i i kind of got an idea for who the boy really was kind of was going to be midway through the poem when i when i made that switch of him aging and it was somebody who was losing that identity of youth. And um, that, that was an important aspect for me and kind of the thing that went further on into the poem as the basis for why, why this is a horror story, really. And it's, you know, it's, I, I think it's something, it's, it's, a, it's a fear for all people. I think it's very prevalent in our society today, that fear of losing our youth. And um, I, I just, I knew that when that's, when that moment happened that this would be kind of my whole kind of thematic connection to the, the setting that we live in I really like that connection to the fictional world and then our world because yeah it is loss of youth is such a strong worry in especially a lot of women but also mm -hmm. men too and um, it's crazy that that's just like so heightened in your story but it's also so real in you know reflecting back on your life like oh my god I was 18 yesterday you know mm -hmm. blink of an eye I'm already 20 you know 
Yeah, um, and you know what? Maybe an inspiration <laughs> subliminally was uh, 13 Going on 30, that movie with Jennifer. <laughs> What's her name? <laughs> Garner, I think. Yes, yeah. yes, Jennifer Garner. Maybe that, yeah, maybe that had some un, un, involuntary influence. Right. But, <laughs> but, you know, and yeah, it, I, I guess that, that idea of like, man, the time, the time change is something that for us, it seems much more prevalent or um, kind of observable through probably mainly because of social media and other kind of, um, you know, forms of um, connection and everything like that. But to actually have that be a physical kind of aspect to the poem, that's where I wanted it to really kind of psychologically raise questions. And I definitely, I think it's very kind of relevant in especially today's social context of um, COVID and how, you know, like Adriana and I, it hit in the last half of our sophomore year at the U of A Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden we're seniors now and it's just kind of like where has the time gone while the whole world was essentially shut down yeah uh, yeah that's absolutely correct and you know I I think that's something um I I kind of wanted to get at just through the isolation of the boy because originally I did think well is this boy gonna go alone is he gonna be accompanied by somebody what you know what what's going to be a stronger kind of um emphasis on that idea of time moving forward and the loss of youth um but yeah that isolation and how it's been experienced just in the past two years is something that is very heavily kind of on our minds and i think it will be pretty thematic through a lot of works and just in you know in general thought for a long time going forward so our next question for you is what draw what has like drawn you to poetry to poetry um man uh you so much <laughs> uh, it's a great question um i i struggled learning how to read <laughs> as a child um and poetry and short stories and lyrics and everything like that they offered a very concise but beautiful presentation of story and character and all of it. Um, And it was all incredibly played out as performative um, in a lot of the poetry that I was exposed to. Um, Not necessarily kind of, um, you know, Shakespearean or anything like that um, when I was growing up, but it all all achieved this idea that you can mix visual storytelling with written, with actual kind of because it's very interesting when you talk about poetry because I I would say that oral kind of performance is even though it's not necessarily a part of poetry as we understand it today I think historically and um, for a lot of what poetry kind of just you know is in general it's a very important part so in general I would say it was just the fact that it's so it's so pertinent across so many cultures and so many peoples and it's just an ability to concisely tell a story with such a powerful emphasis on visualization. And um, kind of like I mentioned earlier with evoking the senses, that, that seems to be a very, very um, important theme or uh, characteristic of poetry. So poetry has so much to it, and it's just so 
so small, you know, in kind of comparison to grand works of fiction. So it's just, it's incredible what poetry can do. I agree. Uh, I will tag on a little extra question. Um, do you only write poetry or do you write like short stories also? I write a lot. <laughs> I write a lot of different stuff. Um, I would say poetry is probably the, I, I would say it's the genre I write the most in or the writing form um, I practice the most. Um, but yeah, I write, I write a lot of short fiction. Um, I, will, uh, I, I do script writing. Um, I do I do a lot of writing. <laughs> it's, it's weird to think about, but yeah, um, just various kind of forms of, um, you know, I, I would say that <laughs> interestingly, poetry is kind of formatted a lot of my writing perspective in terms of how I like to present stuff. And, uh, and in college, that was something that a lot of professors and my uh, peers commented on was that poetic form or poetic language was always present in my work so um yeah I, I write a large variety of stuff but poetry is always kind of it, it's a foundation of mine that's really cool I really like that um poetry really influences your other works too mm-hmm. I always when I'm reading I always love like the moments of poetic like language or you know, whatever I'm reading, I'm like, oh my God, that was so poetic. And I just like those little moments in a bar- in a larger work just like always stick with me. Thank you. And I'm glad you do. Some people, believe it or not, they, they're very critical of it. <laughs> and I, I don't get it personally, but I have been uh, uh, berated a little bit in classes for it. I'm like, wow, <laughs> I so didn't weird. know that. Yeah. You know, and you know what? I think it's, um, it comes down to how um, people were introduced to poetry and there was uh, there was a lot of emphasis on uh, achieving structured and kind of perfect poetry in um, elementary and secondary school and all that. So I think that that was kind of oppressive to a lot of people who were trying to write freeform. And um, it's it's a, it's a shame because I, I just think that poetry has so much potential. And even though yes, you know, in some cases there are certain kind of meter flows or you know um, rhyme patterns that some poetry has to achieve it it really is some form of writing that invites every kind of um impossible kind of uh, combination of language skill do you do a lot of like readings for your poetry because i know that's like a very common thread in um poets mm. um sometimes it, it really does depend on um the kind of poetry i would say so um, for this, I, I, interestingly, I would say it's actually probably for most third-person poetries, uh, third-person perspective poetry I write. I don't actually do a lot of um, reading of it. I, I actually kind of concentrate on the story structure of it more than anything else. Because to me, if I'm writing in third person, it's, it, I kind of have to remove myself in a sense, even though I may identify with the character or whatever kind of... Um, you know, perspective I'm writing from, it's not me. And so it's, it really just, it lives through that written word. But if I'm writing from first person perspective, um, or if it's more intimately connected with something that I'm actually um, tied to, then I will kind of read it out loud um, and practice that. And, and for rhyme scheme and everything, 
it's it, it does help to read at times just to understand how it kind of flows and works together. Well, I think you have uh, not only great like poetry writing talent, but um, just the way you read your poem was very engaging. Um, so I think you have a natural talent for reading it and kind of immersing listeners into the poem through speaking it. Well, thank you. That uh, I, I did a little bit of drama in high school. So I think that that definitely leaks over at times. Um, but in general, you know, I, I think just just the presentation of poetry and maybe this is my greater connection to kind of Shakespearean language and everything like that. It just has that ability to evoke such a strong kind of uh, spoken word persona. So it's just, you know, it's like, even though it, it can be hard to carry that persona at times, it's, you know, it's like, why not try? <laughs> right. Why not try? <laughs> and honestly, it's like those little skills we pick up along the way, like doing drama in high school, like it gave you like a sense of, you know, I can be on a stage, I can be in front of people, mm-hmm. read this seamlessly. So what was your favorite part of writing Santa Dew's Fear? Um, hmm. Um, kind of like I mentioned earlier, I very much liked finding what the character kind of switch would be and how, how that character, I think that's the thing about horror, um, is that <laughs> a lot of other genres of, um, writing and storytelling, you're basically trying to figure out what the switch is to build your character up. With horror, <laughs> you're basically trying to figure out what the switch is to destroy your character or break them into their into their most vulnerable state. So figuring out that moment, I think, was just exciting in the sense that, um, first off, it's not something I do very um, common. But secondly, it just, it, it was kind of this experimentation with what it meant to actually have a character feel these kind of outside forces actually affecting him. And at first, um, the boy, the boy is very um, excited and um, kind of invigorated by the by the temporal um, skip in his age or whatever you're going to call it. Um, and so it's something that as the audience, I was hoping that the audience would be able to kind of also appreciate and feel excited about because now he would he would in theory have the most um, ability or the strong, the best ability to find the girl. But in the end, it kind of led to his downfall, or it it led to his downfall. (laughs) But um, I think that was the most interesting kind of uh, moment in the story for me and kind of the funnest part. Um, But actually, I would say that the end was also kind of top tier competition, because I I did like, um, and maybe this just goes along with the idea of breaking your character, where I literally broke the boy apart. But um, I, I I enjoyed being able to deliver a moment in which my character failed and I was able to kind of reflect on it and say, this is why, um, you know, he failed. And it was cool because I, I got to go out with the last um, last couple of lines and make it into this kind of um, medieval kind of lesson in which it's, you know, beware this certain aspect of reality or of of where you have your environment because so and so 
So I think that was a cool moment in which I actually got to cross periods a little bit. So I, I would say that that was really cool just to initiate and kind of, again, it was, it was pretty experiential for me or yeah. And um, I, I, I just had a lot of fun experimenting in the horror genre. That's cool. I also have never really written horror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's interesting to like, you know, when you do branch out and experience, experiment with other genres, how strangely interested you get in like writing those other genres yeah you know I'm like maybe I should start writing more horror I haven't done (laughs) it yet but (laughs) I think this is a good stepping stone for that yeah I definitely agree with that I think this poem shows that you have a bit of a knack for horror I I would be interested in reading like any kind of other horror poetry or short story that you come up with because you just were able to tell such a really great story for not really having a lot of experience in the horror genre. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I, I think that's the other thing is that in the horror genre, I kind of uphold myself to like, oh man, if it's not Edgar Allan Poe, I'm not doing it right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, when you just, when you realize that, that you know, there's just so many different aspects of horror, it's, it's kind of like what I was saying earlier about poetry in general when you just realize that there's so much potential and different directions in which you can take the, the horror genre, it, you, you know, it, it doesn't become debilitating as much as it becomes inviting. So I think that that is really cool. And I'm glad that um, you guys, again, it, it was meant to be for um, a younger age group, not necessarily. Um, and I, I don't consider my home necessarily uh, age kind of um, targeted. But um, I knew that I didn't want it to be something um, gory or super gritty or anything like that. I wanted it to, to be more ominous and kind of alluding to these greater outside forces that aren't necessarily well-defined. And that's what makes it more frightening than anything else. So I will be the first to admit I am like a total scaredy pants. I don't mm-hmm. watch horror movies, don't watch... Like, I don't consume a lot of horror media because I, I scare very easily and my brain just like, I logically, I know it's not real and like <laughs> these ghosts and demons and whatnot don't exist and they're not going to come get me. But for some reason, my brain is just like, hey, you saw this mildly scary thing. Let's be up all night. <laughs> but um, I... I will say I do appreciate kind of ominous and eerie horror more than I do mm-hmm. like bloody and gory horror. I Definitely. Think, yeah. you know, I think bloody and gory horror is kind of, I don't want to necessarily say it's kind of a cop out, but I think it's, it takes a bit more skill to make something ominously creepy than it does just like blood and guts. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, I, I would say that um, really I would I would put this around the 80s, and this is just for uh, film in general, is that that's when we saw that transition from ominous kind of um, psychological thrillers and everything like that because you had the 60s and the 70s with Hitchcock films being largely psychological thrillers or um, kind of serial killer stories. 
and then you switched from the 80s and to the present day really where it is just it is predominantly kind of that thrasher um the film and i think that's kind of prevailed also in um writing <laughs> in which a lot of it does just allude to this gore aspect of like oh that's the shock factor but for me actually um i i and this was this was something that i knew would challenge me from the beginning if i did take a, a much harsher approach and try to write something gory or more uh you know scary in that kind of way was that i i feel like it edges so close to being just absurd and comedic at a certain point that you lose the horror genre and you're just writing comedy so that I, I i knew i was like i have to make it ominous just for my own sake and for you know i think it's more effective in that kind of way like you were talking about well um can you give us uh any insight into any of your future projects oh man um let's see uh for poetry, I have been I've all I've been kind of working on a collection, more or less. It, um, or I, I would say a collection or collections, more or less, for really several years now, in which a um, lot of different concentrations. Um, I would say that uh, kind of historical fiction is a main concept. Our historical fiction reflection is a main concentration point in which. Um, it's just kind of going back and reflecting in a poetic manner on a lot of prominent historical events. Um, I also just work in general kind of with uh, my own kind of poetry in which it's basic expression of different thoughts, emotions, and philosophical perspectives um, that I've developed and how those kind of interact. And um, I like to present those kind of in a more Socratic um, lesson format. Um, and, and that's, I, I think that's also an influence, not necessarily as much for Xanadu's fear, but in general for writing poetry, it, it does have, um, it, for me, it is important to involve um, a kind of philosophical deliberation in its core. So that those are projects for poetry I've always been working on. Um, uh, working on, I'm trying to think, <laughs> so many disorganized projects, I'll admit, but more or less, um, the, the other concrete piece is a journal and reflecting um, one of my travels to California and kind of delivering that through a very um, John Steinbeck kind of travel novel approach. And um, I'm not sure how that will be presented, either short fiction, um, vignette style, or um, even as a novella. But um, those are those are kind of my main projects right now, um, along with different smaller things that maybe will be composed into a collection eventually but we'll have to see well it sounds like you're very busy and all your projects sound very interesting and really close to your heart as you know as a human being like close to you and I really especially think the John Steinbeck inspired piece will be really really interesting to read Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it, uh, I, I, I was I was afraid to say John Steinbeck. So I'm like, oh, man, that's a lot to hold myself up to. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, just that concentration. I, I don't know if you guys have read Travels with Charlie. Um, I'd recommend it. <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. Um, it's it's um, actually it's similar in that vein of reflecting on his travels, because that's literally what John Steinbeck is doing. Um, but just just his intimate connection 
with the land and how it's kind of evolved over the course of his life is something that I would like to kind of achieve. And so I don't know if this is a project that I would, um, you know, write in kind of the short span of my life right now, or from the perspective of the short span of my life right now, or if I'd, you know, continue to work on it over the whole course of my life and compile it together. That's really, really cool. Um, I also like that as an idea of also your poetry collection and how that's like accumulative up to this point and like how your other work could also be like through the rest of your life. Like, that's really cool. I feel like that's a trend. <laughs> so like, that's really yeah. cool for you. Yeah. You know, I'm like, Hey, that gives me a reason to keep writing. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I, and that's, the, that's the key to it is like, at the end of the day, I, I'll, I'll always be writing, you know, even, right. even if it's not for, you know, certain competitions or to get published in certain places, it's just something that is such a core component of who I am that it's, you know, you can't take the writer out of me. Right. <laughs> totally. Well, we will have to keep our eye out in the future for your books to hit the bookstore oh. shelves. I hope not to disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, if Xanadu's man. fear is any indication, I am sure that you won't. I appreciate that greatly. Alrighty. Well, thank you both for joining us today for this very special Halloween episode. Uh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, you know, thank you guys for having me. And thank you guys for reading my poem. You know, I'm glad I was able to share it and kind of work with your guys's um, the competition and what you guys were trying to achieve. We really enjoyed having you guys on the show with us today talking about your works, which we absolutely loved. Um, and we're excited to be seeing writing from both of you in the future. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, check us out on our website or other social media accounts. Until next time, happy reading.